0: Looks like I wouldn't be able to beat you at ping pong, Jimmy. Does someone want to stick that in the offering plate for us? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about uh, about you guys. I have uh, enjoyed uh, kind of preaching and, and working through this, this series. And um, if for no one else, uh, it's been, been helpful for me uh, as I reflect on, on sort of so some of the things in my own life that I tend to, to pray, place a greater emphasis on, perhaps even tread into worshipping, rather than worshipping the one true God who's made himself known in Jesus. And, and I think for me, uh, again, personally, it's been the, the first idol that we started with, materialism, and the last one, uh, that I think are, are probably, those, probably the two that I tend to struggle with the absolute most. Um, And and part of that I think perhaps is is a generational thing. Uh, I don't think I have to to tell anyone here uh, that I am of the the millennial generation. Um, I actually fall pretty much smack dab in the middle of of that generation. And and I embody most of the qualities that many people often accuse that generation of of holding. Uh, Some of the positive and, and probably all of the negative. Um, and, and there are certainly a lot of negative things that, that people sort of point to millennials and, and say that, oh man, they just have these awful qualities. People tend to characterize millennials as as narcissistic, um, as entitled, perhaps even pretty lazy. In fact, as, as you think about the, the millennial generation, one thing that comes to mind is there's a book that came out It was back in 2006. It was by a a psychologist by the name of Dr. Gene Twenge. And the title of the book is called Generation Me. And I think in the minds of a lot of people, is that perfectly characterizes the way my generation operates. Is that we, perhaps more than any generation before us, are are maybe more individualistic, more self-focused than any other generation. In fact, the subtitle of of that book is is Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. It's a pretty dire outlook for the future of our nation. But what I find rather interesting is actually if you search Generation Me in Google, the first thing that comes up is not that book. One of the first things that comes up is a magazine from back in the 70s. It was an issue of New York Magazine. And what this issue was titled was The Me Decade. And it describes a generation that is not referred to as Generation Me, but was referred to as the Me Generation. And you know what generation that was? That was my parents. It was a lot of you guys. That that generation, almost 50 years ago now, was labeled things like narcissistic, entitled, self-focused. That it was the baby boomer generation was the first one that had this this mentality of of self-improvement. And I got to thinking that maybe this whole individualism thing isn't all that new. And maybe it's something that extends beyond just millennials. Perhaps even something that extends beyond the parents of the millennials. In fact, I I was looking up uh, a a quote from from C.S. Lewis from The Four Loves and I actually came across a different quote where he is talking about uh, this rudeness of the rising generation that so many people had observed. And and what I found so funny is, is that as he's addressing this, he says, I have been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than by those of children to parents. Even in, in C.S. Lewis's day, he saw, yeah, perhaps this individualism exists in our youth, but you know where else I see it? I see it in their parents. It's not just my generation, it's not just your generation. This problem of, of individualism is something that I believe has been with us basically from the beginning, or at least shortly after. The beginning, Genesis chapter 3. This is a story that probably many of you, if you grew up in the church, know rather well. It's one that's been written on a great deal, spoken on a great deal. We hear once again, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Up until this point, Eve has done fairly well. God actually say, "There's, there's... A boundary for you. Any tree you're not able to eat of. And Eve responds, No, we can, we can eat of, of any tree in the garden except for that one that resides in the middle of the garden. We can't eat of that tree. And then she adds some commentary here on God's command. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And go back to chapter 2, where God very clearly gives Adam and Eve this command. Actually, at this point in the story, it was actually just Adam at the time, and, and God gives him this command. You can have dominion over everything. You can eat of any tree that you see, except for that one tree. Now, many have wondered why this command. Why is the, the tree there? In the first place, one writer by the name of of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he comments on on this, uh, the first few chapters of of Genesis, and and he comments that this tree is for Adam and for Eve, this reminder of what is both at the center and the boundary for them. And that is God. That, That at the boundary of their life, there is one thing they cannot be, and that is God. They are creator and creature. And that creator who is both the boundary, the one place they cannot go, the one who they cannot be, he is also the one who is at the center of everything. He is the one who provides for everything. The one who made everything and continues to preserve it and care for it. And the tree then stands as a reminder of the one who resides both at the center of of everything, and at the boundary of their lives. And so here the temptation comes. Did God really say that you can't eat of this tree? Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The center of that temptation is, is just that one simple phrase. In the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. Now, this is an important phrase here. Because if you remember back to chapter 1, you perhaps remember that when God created man and woman, we're told that they were created in the image of God. And here there's a slight twist of that. That no longer do they need to simply be in the image of God. They can be like God. No longer do they need to simply reflect God to the creation around them. They can reflect themselves. No longer does God need to be at the center and the boundary of your life. But now you can be both the center, the boundary. You can have no limits. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't have to be content to be in the image of God. You can be like Him. This, I think, is ultimately the idol that resides behind all of our other idols. This individualism, this placing ourselves at the center, this desire to not simply be in the image of God, reflecting God, but to simply be like Him. To reflect ourselves, to decide for ourselves what is good, what is bad, to create reality for ourselves, to be at the center of all things, to be able to to provide for ourselves, to care for ourselves, to be bound only to ourselves and, and to no one else is the idol behind every single other idol the Russian-American writer and philosopher, uh, Ayn Rand, uh, who is infamous, if you will, uh, actually kind of very openly almost advocates for this kind of thinking. That society should be created for each person to pursue life as they see fit. And, And in one of her books called Anthem... I think she captures the human heart so perfectly. She says, And now I see the face of God, and I raise this God over the earth, this God whom men have sought since men came into being, this God who will grant them joy and peace and pride, this God, this one word, I. This God, this one word, I. I can be like God. I can provide for myself. I can bring my joy, my pride. I don't need anyone else, nor do I need to be bound to anyone else. I raise the name of this God over all the earth. Say what you will, about Ayn Rand, I think she captures the human spirit quite well. Because it is that individualism, that desire to be like God, that lies behind every single idol that we worship. And many of these idols, they're simply sacrifices that we offer to the God of I. Right? What is the promise of materialism? If you have this, if you acquire this or buy this, you will be in control, you will be powerful, you can be like God. What's the promise of legalism? You can be in charge of your own salvation. You don't need anyone else. Either by your actions or your right thinking, you can achieve salvation on your own, bound to no one, dependent on no one. You can be like God. Traditionalism. If you just turn back time, go back to the good old days, you can make life the way it was always meant to be. By following this prescription, you can be like God. Experientialism. Have these experiences, these authentic feelings. You can determine your own reality, you can create the life you've always longed for. You can be like God underneath every single idol. It's the same voice of the serpent. The same promise. In the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. You can live at the center of reality. You can have no boundary other than the one that you set for yourself. You can provide for yourself. You can be dependent on no one. You can be bound to no one. You can be alone in your pursuit of happiness and joy and wholeness. You can be like God. You can be free. And I think to a lot of us that 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 sounds really good. Free ourselves from obligations to others. Just take care of number one. Provide for no one but me. Worry about no one but me. Care for no one but me. Live my life at the center. It sounds appealing. Until, of course, those moments in which we're confronted with our limits. Until those moments that we are forced to recognize just how little is really in our control. Like those moments when we lose that person that we care so deeply about. And there's nothing we can do Those moments when when we receive the diagnosis and we recognize that in the face of it we're helpless. Those moments when we find that, that the wealth that we've accrued, the things we've collected maybe don't provide the wholeness that they promised. We recognize our limits, and we find that to be like God for us is to be alone. We spend our days trying to care for ourselves and ourselves alone, and we drive everyone away. We find ourselves lonely, afraid, and we recognize that to be like God for us is death. Where do we turn in those moments? Where do we turn in those moments when we're confronted face to face with the reality that to be like God is to die? For you and for me, for people who are limited, to live our lives at the center means for us at the end death. Where do we turn? Where do we run when our desire to be like God, our desire to live at the center, leaves us hopeless and helpless and afraid? Because in those moments, all these idols, they become nothing more than just those fig leaves that we use to cover ourselves, to hide our fear, to hide our shame. Where do we turn? Where do we run to? In those moments when we realize that maybe, just maybe, we can't rely on ourselves. One of the things that we discover as we pour through the scriptures is that over and over again as we see humanity seek to climb up and unseat God from his throne... Every time that humanity seeks to ascend to the heavens and, and be like God, our God is actually undeterred, unchanging, unwavering in his plans and his desires to live at the center of reality, not for himself, but actually for the sake of his creation. And while humanity has, for all of history, been intent on becoming like God, our God has always been intent in descending into creation to become like us. Right? We heard it in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, that Jesus, the Son of God, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men. and Being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we wanted to be like God, our God was content. He was humble enough to send his Son to be like us. And becoming like us, he became the Lamb of God who could restore to us the image of God. By bearing that cross for us. By paying the penalty that our sin and our rebellion deserved. And it's on that cross that is at the center of all things. That he has provided everything. Everything that is needed to free you from the prison of your rebellion. To free you from the enslavement of being like God. So that you could once again be called his creature. Be called his child so that you could once again bear that image of God. Because of His humility, because He was willing to bear that cross, what was once a tool meant for death has become a tree of life for all humanity. And not only has our God provided for us in that way, Not only has he freed us from our enslavement to that desire to be like God, he hasn't just given you that. But look around and see what else he's given you. He's given you this place. And by this place, I don't mean this building, but rather, he has given you these people, he has given you the church. So that you don't have to provide for yourself. You don't have to live at the center. But He has placed you in the community that He calls His own body. The community that He feeds and clothes Himself. The community that He feeds and and quenches their thirst with His body and blood. The, The community that He clothes with the robes of His own righteousness. The community that He has given to support you. To strengthen you in your faith. The community He's given you to call you back when you turn and wander astray. Man, I can tell you time and time again that it has been the church that has been there in the most important and most challenging moments in my life. When I was a kid and and making stupid mistakes, who was there? Church, whether I wanted them there or not. And as I grew up, who was there? the church. And as I was pursuing ministry, who was there supporting me? The church. And when I had children, who was there to help us, to support us, to feed us? the church. And when I've been mourning and in grief over losing family members, who's been there? The church. The church is the community that God has given you so that you would know that you don't have to live life as an individual, so that you would know you don't have to be like God. But He has given you this community to support you and to strengthen you and to be there when you recognize your limits and you recognize your helplessness. He's given you, for that reason, and that time, the church. And if you haven't experienced that, I invite you, open yourself to that. Open yourself to being supported by the community that God has placed you in. And, and if maybe you, you've tried to do that and you haven't received support, don't run from the church, but rather call the church to do what it's been given to do, which is love, which is to reflect the image of God to one another. To be a reminder of the God whose love has driven him to pour out everything and give everything, even his own life. Call the church back to doing what we have been called to do. Call us back to love, to serve, to give as our God has given. To reflect His image in the work that we do, in the way that we love one another. I love this quote from, from the early church father, Tertullian. As he's speaking about the way that, that the Romans would often sort of sneer at Christians in jest. They would say... See how they love one another. See the way those weak people care for and rely on one another. See the way that they don't seek to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Those weak Christians, they they need someone else. They can't do it on their own. See how they love one another. How I wish the world would say the same of us. See how they love one another. See how they care for one another. See how they provide for one another. See how they strengthen one another. Because that love for one another is the primary reflection and one of the best witnesses we give to the world as to what our God is like. That we have a God who's there for the weak. We have a God who is there and provides for the lowly. A God who does not ask us to be like Him, But a God who simply calls us to reflect his image. A God who calls us to give as we have been given. To love as we have been loved. To serve as he has served us. Turn from your idols. Because you don't have to be like God. You don't have to be like God but instead you simply get to reflect the image of God because He has given Himself for you. Amen? Amen.